Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for Monday, February 22nd, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. My name's Evan Kelly, and we've got a time machine. Whoop, 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 whoop. I still fuck that up. <laughs> I still fuck that up pretty consistently. It feels weird. If Yeah, I think we are still in 2020. I'm just looking at it right now, and it's cool because we're recording on 2212021. So that's the yeah. only reason why it really caught my attention. Yeah. Well, anyway, February 21st. <laughs> 2021 my name's joe hicks it's still evan kelly over here yeah and um and evan <laughs> kelly what are we here to do today uh, we're going with it we're rolling with yeah, it. yeah well uh today apparently we got jokes and jokes and jokes but normally we um we want to talk about some hot button issues facing our society and we want to evaluate opinions and findings in the light of facts no matter where they come from we want to make sure that we evaluate all ideas in good faith doing our best to keep ourselves and our audience adequately informed yeah like it's tough out there you know it's tough out there for a takes person we're the takes people it's not hard at all we just have takes but we're the take aggregators we want to try and do takes in an honest manner you know just like the old country um (laughs) You know, we we do it the old-fashioned way by evaluating resources, which is actually not the old-fashioned way of doing takes. We churn our this takes by hand. <laughs> you know, this whole, like, actually having facts readily available and it, having an informed discussion, I feel like it's, you know, it's almost kind of a newer thing. I mean, there has been informed discussion, but for the masses, no, I don't know. But anyway, 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 we want to we want to do it in a good faith. We want to treat the ideas charitably when they are able to be treated charitably. And we don't want to just wholesale write people off as whatever's and not interface with the ideas of it. Um, You know, we aren't on the ivory tower. We, We aren't the people calling shots like that. But, you know, since we're doing jokes at the beginning, I I tweeted about this, but like I saw I was out driving. I went through Canton, Illinois, and I saw a billboard that was anti ivory poaching in Canton, Illinois. You know, I hear that's a really big problem out there. Uh, the, the Yeah, real big problem, the ivory poaching. Yeah, the Serengeti, the famous oh. Serengeti of Canton. They're really thinning out the ranks. Got to got to hold back. Yeah, the poachers <laughs> come every year. They have poacher days. It's a big event. Um, yeah, so I, I'm glad they're really doing something to try and dig down. But, you know, because we were trying to build the ivory tower. And I guess that's going <laughs> to I guess that's not in Canton limit our supply. <laughs> yeah, not in Canton. They're wise to us now. All right. I know this is not the topic of the episode, but because we're talking about billboards, I want to discuss this this with you, Joe, and I've never brought this up to you before. So get some authentic reactions in here. So the other day was probably uh, three weeks ago. uh, My wife and I were driving just trying to get some dinner and we saw a billboard that just said, uh, hey, congratulations to Kokomo, Indiana men's basketball state champions, 1961. And we were just like, what the hell? 
What? That's great. And so it was just like this giant mystery. We're like, you know, Kokomo's kind of close to here, but like, do they just have an active alumni association? What What is it with this? And so <laughs> the Indie Star did an investigative report on it, and it was part of a marketing ploy by the billboard company to test the effectiveness of their billboards. <laughs> so like they call people before they put up these billboards and they say, Hey, do you know who won the state basketball championship in 1961? And they're like, fucking, of course not. And then they run the billboard campaign and then they call people again <laughs> and they say, Hey, who won the state basketball championship in 1961? And people can say, Oh, Kokomo. <laughs> <laughs> that is beautiful. And so that, is, um... that, that was the mystery of the Kokomo 1961 basketball championship billboards. Um, I know our Indiana listenership is not as high as it is in say Illinois or Ohio, but um, that's, there's the little billboard riffing for your, for your commute. Well, geez, billboards have now taught me exactly three things that they're, you know, that um, ivory poaching is bad in Canton, Illinois, <laughs> that the Kokomo men's whoever's, you know, won the state championship in 1960, whatever. And so did it teach you? Is, you you're, you're throwing out a lot of whatever. Hey, I know. I know more. <laughs> I know more than I otherwise would have. And and that there is an adult mega store on exit, you know, sixty three on I eight. Lions Den. Yeah, billboards have taught me exactly. <laughs> um. So anyway, after that, after this fun starting tangent, um, uh, what are we, what are we going to talk about, Evan? <laughs> I think today we're going to talk about uh, the growing concern of racism as filtered through the lens of another podcast that we enjoy. So, like I said, take aggregators. We're going to we're going to comment on the commentary. Yeah. So this this is an it's like an extension of what was talked about uh, our last episode, The Color of Law. That was our last episode, right? Yes. I believe so. Yeah. Okay. So very timely, a uh, new episode of the Ezra Klein show came out, a podcast that both Evan and I listened to um, where, uh, let me see, let me pull it up here. I have it here. So um, he had on Heather McGee, who wrote the book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Prosper Together. A new book that highlights um, a form of racism that uh, happened in America that is somewhat pretty well, like at, at some points can be linked to what happened in The Color of Law or, you know, as a post-secondary. But so the way, you know, Again, Evan and I have not read the book, right, Evan? You didn't, like, magically go get a book and, <laughs> and read it in the last three days? No, I was reading The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, so that, that's a great book, too. But no, not this brand new book. I got a pile that I okay. still have to get through. All right, so we're going to be talking about the ideas as they came through podcast form on our podcast. I feel like we're moving into, like... <laughs> And, and then I heard someone on the street say, and, and um, we're, we're moving away from the primary sources, but you know what? It's, it's our thing. 
<laughs> we can do whatever. We'll still be in um, good faith. We still won't be on the ivory tower. It just won't be primary sources. Yeah. We are not. Don't use us as a source. Yeah. Don't cite us in your sources. academic paper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so the the thrust of this, you know, it was kind of there is this central metaphor that kept coming up where in the in the mid 20th century, a lot of municipalities had moved into, um, you know, these big public provisions where these municipalities and cities, you know, part of the project of building up a multicultural white race in some ways was building these kind of resort style uh, water parks that were, you know, to show off like the wealth of the country that, you know, we could do, you know, build these things. We could have these great public provisions, these, these great things that we wouldn't otherwise have for the people. And it's accessible to all people, except at the time it was only available to the white populations. Um, so, you know, a lot of municipalities built up these, you know, pools and water parks and all this infrastructure. And I think, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised, if, you know, we have one here in Galesburg and I wouldn't be surprised if it came up during that era. But the second part didn't happen here where what happened was that after the Civil Rights Act happened, that whole era where it basically became illegal to discriminate um uh, you know, against race, that many municipalities, instead of opening up their public pools to black people to also enjoy them, they instead close the pools. And in some, uh, a, a good number of cases, even filling in the pools, you know, sometimes selling it off to private entities who would make it a no longer a public good. Sometimes, you know, just closing it, but then other times physically filling in the pool to change the nature of a public good just to sabotage it so that black people couldn't use it. Yeah. And also not just selling it off to a private entity, but selling it for like a comically low fee of like a dollar, like essentially giving it away and saying, you know, we would we would that was basically the through line of either selling it or filling in the pools with concrete was saying if we can't keep this whites only we don't want it right and this opens up like it's not just you know swimming pools that are you know prone to swimming pool draining politics there was a whole lot of things that happened in um in the in the kind of change after uh, the Civil Rights Act, where there was a whole lot of people, where or or politicians or notable people or even just you know regular people, you know, it was no longer kosher to be just blatantly racist. Like that was a change. You could no longer, you know, it was no longer cool to be like. We, you know, we want, we believe that in segregation, I mean, there are some people, but there was a good number where, you know, that was still, that was a bridge too far to go. And 
it was this way of trying to figure out or or like we'll just burn the bridge to all of these things that we had as a society that we just don't want black people to also enjoy like one of them is um uh public universities like you know i feel like this is something that we talk about in the progressive world all the time is that you know there was a period of time where if you put went to a public university you know that had the state it name in it it was thought that you know you would be able to go there as a citizen of the state and get a pretty cheap education something that you know you wouldn't be burdened with debt and that you wouldn't um you know it wouldn't be a huge bar to pay for yeah that summer wages could pay for the year's tuition yeah essentially at worst yeah which it is just mind-boggling you know that that was you know something you could do you know something you could swing but then what ended up happening was pretty much around the time you know in the post civil rights era these universities started getting cuts to their provisions states stopped seeing it as a public good for people to go and get a quality education at these public institutions for a cheap price and there are a lot of things that changed but like the big one was that like it you know it it they were forced to admit black people (laughs) Um, they were forced to admit black students to do that. And that was seen as something that was morally outrageous. So since they had to provide that education to black people as well as white people, it, it became like untenable for, you know, some locales to even give it to white people. And And the connection is, is that like, through this, cons- you know, kind of conservatism that came about in the post uh, post uh, civil rights era, it's like almost all of our public provisions got turned towards private p- provisions where the wealth of the family mattered. And what was like the last big gasp of race, you know, positive racist, uh, public policy before the Civil Rights Act was giving was a huge wealth generating program for whites. Hey, so color like of we, law is back. Yeah, that's color of law. So basically, the last thing we did was give this launching board for wealth for a whole lot of white families, and then change society. So that the real way that you are able to access the goods that a society provides was through generational wealth, which black people historically have not had in this country. Yeah, the metaphor they use on the previous podcast is that they built the ladder and then they pulled the ladder up. Yeah. Well, and it's like. I don't know. Well, and they, you know, they either pulled the ladder up or somehow like made the bottom rungs like real rickety. So like some people 
very carefully making all the right moves and having luck could, yeah yeah and having luck could make it up the ladder i mean there are you know there are wealthy black people it's not to say that they're all in poverty or even all you know just you know even all desperately in poverty or you know that a characterization that a dichotomy like that i'm i'm yeah I'm just just to, super, to yeah to kind yeah. of pull this all together is that um you know obviously black people exist on every segment of the socioeconomic strata yes, yes. however there's clear links that we have already discussed on this show which have systematically made it more likely that african americans end up lower on that strata than a, an equivalent white counterpart. Yeah. That's all. That's well, all. No, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate you stepping in for me <laughs> in, in the hole that I dug that I did not want to dig. Um, but it's like, like hell, this, this ladder, like it used to be that, you know, before, you know, when there was a direct public provision for uh, college, that that was a rung on the ladder that was accessible. Like, you know, it was a little bit harder to get into college back then, or people just didn't expect that of you. But if you, you know, you were able to go to a public university, then that was a really good deal. And like, that was a rung that was a solid rung for people back then for white people, especially like, again, because not every state allowed black people to go in on that really good education. But you know, that's a, you know, for building intergenerational wealth, for someone to be able to go to college for cheaply, that's, that's, that, you, you know, if you can make it through that, then that's a really solid rung that will help you and your family in the long run. But what ended up happening was that that rung wasn't available for a whole lot of people, for a whole lot of black people, especially. And that, once it became more readily available to them, that rung cost a whole lot more money um, that they really didn't have um, because, again, intergenerational wealth. You know, it's crazy that, pe- you know, we base children's or people's ability to pay for college based on the amount of money that their parents make. Yeah, so I, I want to jump in here because this is what I think is so important is that when we adequately fund public higher education we say anyone who's qualified can obtain this and do so relatively debt-free but what happens when you start cutting budgets to colleges and universities is that that extra money has to be made up with through tuition so the burden is now off of taxpayers and onto students so what are the implications of this that means that now we're not all paying a little bit to have a better educated, more productive workforce. Students directly are paying, which means either they have intergenerational wealth, their families have inherited money, and they can just pay for the tuition outright, or the student has to accumulate massive amounts of debt, which is true in my case. And so we are, in effect, tilting the playing field towards those whose families have an ability to pay independent of the student's own characteristics and merit. Yeah. And so, you know, when you are saddled with debt, you know, 
that makes it harder to do a whole lot of other things. It, it may, I mean, in the in the realist sense, it, it's just hard to generate wealth. Like wealth generates by compounding interest a lot of times. You know, let's say you know you go to university and then your student loan payment is something like I don't know, like five hundred dollars a month, and that's $500 that you're not being able to use to help generate wealth. Like if you were able to put that towards like, I don't know, even just like a 401k, then that money would create massive financial gains for you. But since you're taking that money and putting it towards those loans, then you're missing out on the best earning money that will ever happen in your life. Um, because again, you know, compounding interest means that money you put into savings, you know, the furthest away compound the most interest. Mm-hmm. And since we're robbing young people with the ability really to save or, you know, create wealth or, you know, hell, go buy the house that's going to be the appreciating asset to create wealth, what we've essentially done is now that we are more willing to accept black people into university, the trade-off has been that the payoff for a university education is not as high-paying or wealth-generating thanks to high student loan dependence. Yeah, and that it is stratified based on the pre-existing inequalities that the students take into college with them there's a long time myth and belief that you know as long as you can get into college and come out on the other side all those graduates are going to be equal and we're finding more and more that what you get out of college is dependent on what you bring into college and not necessarily even in an academic sense there's a really great book sort of a foundational book for me in understanding this called paying for the party Um, which I highly recommend for everyone to read for ways that the collegiate structure, the structure of colleges and universities themselves, really reinforce these types of things independent of funding. But nonetheless, it's still relevant to this discussion, specifically surrounding the funding cuts to public goods after integration. Yeah. Well, it just also gets to me that, like, you know, people will say, well, they got to work for it. I mean, you know, in the past, I worked for it. Man, the the quote, having to work for it these days, at, at least for like a college education, if you're someone who is from a lesser um, background, then like it's just so much harder than like even having to work for it back in the day. Yeah. Like, you know, having a job or two while you're a full-time student to try and pay for things. So you don't have even more debt or, you know, you don't have access to getting stable, decent loans during that time to be able to pay for those things. I mean, that makes call it, I mean, it just, it's just a pressure keg. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't want to make this too much about me because the bigger and more important points are about race. And clearly, 
I have benefited from white privilege as much as any white person. But a lot of this just feels so raw and personal to me, you know? Um, when I was in grad school, and again, also it was grad school, so it's another different equation altogether. But I worked um, six days a week and had class two days a week. So I had eight obligations for seven days a week. And that was spread across uh, two jobs each three days a week and then the class, full-time course load. So, yeah, it's fucking hard when you got to try to earn money while also doing the thing that you hope will earn you more money later. Um, yeah. That's a lot to juggle that not every generation has had to contend with. Well, right. And then, I mean, we're, we're getting a bit far away from the discussion that was brought up by the Ezra Klein podcast. I know, but and I mean, it's my fault. I'm derailing. The, but no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if we have a whole lot more to directly lift from that. I guess it's more of a jumping off point. But, I mean, it's perfectly fine. This is where the conversation, this is what Adequately Formed is about. You're right. I just feel self-conscious. Yeah, don't feel it. <laughs> um, but it's like, so then let's say you do graduate from college. Let's say you're a black person who graduated from college and you have a fair amount of debt and you're even able to get a decent job where you're able to handle the amount of debt that you got and all that's, you know, and, and you know, you're able to manage. But one thing since that there is not this intergenerational wealth, you run into the situation where you as the newly minted grad student with a good job and all this debt are now possibly the wealthiest person in your family. And just through that, and it's not just that you're the wealthiest person in the family. Like of, of course you want the generation who comes after to do better than the one before, but because no intergenerational wealth built up in the previous generation uh, there are a lot of you know African American people who end up being successful in life, who end up having to also take care of their family, mm -hmm. um, because their families there was no intergenerational wealth build up, and really if they didn't help, they would be in quite dire circumstances because there really isn't anybody else to come and help. Um, so that so not. Only does the generation that go and get a college education burdened with large amounts of debt um, that is difficult to manage and difficult to build wealth under. There are also familial obligations that they end up taking on because nobody else is going to be able to help them. Like there isn't some rich auntie or something like that, you know, to come along that they are the one who made it and are the ones who are able to help. And every time that a uh, you know person of the next generation has to provide direct financial support to the previous generation, that, that is also a drain on wealth building. Yeah, and this next point that I want to make is something that Joe and I have talked before and it's something that comes up on that other podcast that we keep referencing. But... The wealth gap in many ways is much more important than the income gap because two people who get out of school and make the same income have no income gap. But let's say the first student was able to get out of school with no debt because 
their parents were able to pay for them. And the second student didn't have that, so they have to accumulate debt. Even though these two graduates are making the same income, the first one immediately gets to start taking surplus income and generating wealth. They get to start replenishing that pot immediately. The second graduate has to earn back all of that extra money that his parents didn't give him up front to pay for college, and only then can he start generating wealth. So now, student A, graduate A, despite, you know, making the same amount of money as graduate B, is now able to pay for their kids to go into college debt-free much more easily than student B. So in many ways, the wealth gap is even harder to overcome naturally than the any income gaps. Right. And, and the the crux of it is that, I mean, this is part of, you know, the, the future someday racism project that I want to do. But it's just like, in this country, black people have never really had a chance to generate wealth, at least not on the scale that white people generally have had. Now, it's something that's still hard to do to begin with. You know, there are still plenty of poor white families, but there are ways to go about it and ways that make it easier that just black people have not had. You know, like there are, you know, the one thing that I, I, I remember the big example from The Color of Law that I kept hearkening back was, you know, the the guy who charged rent four times more for black people than what it was for white people. Like if you're paying that much more for rent, you're not going to have money to generate wealth at all. Like rent is normally one of the big, you know, the biggest expense to a family, every, you know, rent or, you know, the mortgage, that's like one of the biggest expenses, fixed expenses every month. And, you know, if you're having to pay substantially more for that, then you're not able to generate additional income to be able to create intergenerational wealth. So, and, and it's just like American history is littered with these where black people um, only had jobs available to them that paid less. So, you know, they had less income to begin with. So that means less ability to create intergenerational wealth. There are also... Um, you know, it's just more expensive to be poor in this country than it is to be, you know, someone with moderate income. Like just the fact of having a bank account that is just like decreases the cost to, you know, you know, living in a society so much. But it's difficult for some of the very poor people because. Um, one, they may not have the money to open account, which these days is not so much the issue, but the real issue is like overdraft fees or things like that, where, you know, if you accidentally try to take too much money out of your account, then all of a sudden you're incurring this big, uh, you know, fee for trying to do so. And that puts additional drain on resources. Or something like payday loans, where if you need a little yeah. bit of cash or title loans, you know, any sort of high interest loans, you need a little bit of cash to get you through a certain period, then the amount that you pay to borrow that money is astronomical as a percentage, you know. 
Yeah. So yeah, there's it's it's so counterintuitive, and I think a lot of people don't understand it. There's a lot of hidden charges associated with not having cash up front. Money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not not having a little bit of liquid cash, you know, or having a buffer. Or, you know, so so being poor costs more money, which, you know, if it costs more money marginally, then you're not able to put away money for wealth or hell transportation in this damn country. Like, you know, I I have a car and I pay insurance on it and I couldn't really live without a car. I could maybe get a bike and maybe get away with it. But like if you're in a you know if you if you really need to do any sort of transportation to your job that's like dependable i mean it just costs money and especially if you're poor supporting a car is an expensive thing mm-hmm. like you know i'm thinking for my car i pay like 300 a month on the car payment i pay like 90 something in insurance and somebody who knows maybe somebody will come back oh man you're you're these prices are all over the place (laughs) but then like and then when i used to work an hour away i would have to get two tanks of gas a week so that would be eight tanks and my car's tank is 10 gallons so i would end up buying about 80 gallons worth of gas a month and that's, you know, I mean, let's say, you know, it's a two bucks a gallon, which is cheap, you know, lowballing it. I mean, that's that's, you know, one hundred sixty something dollars a, week, a month. So between the gas, the insurance and the car payment, I'm paying three hundred plus sixty three sixty or, you know, three three ninety. So I'm paying like five fifty a month for a car. Just for transportation. The bare minimum. To go to a jo- Yeah, that's the bare minimum to go to a job that's like an hour away that takes that much gas. That's but not if something like, breaks. You know, that's not, you know, driving to see people. That is just to sustain your employment. Yeah. And that's that's an expense I can make because I have, you know, a, a decent enough income. But if you're someone who's poor, I mean, let's say you... Even, yeah, I mean, and it also gets even weirder because, you know, oftentimes for the poorer people, the only type of cars that they can afford are really, really cheap ones. So, like, maybe a $1,000 car, a $1,000 to $2,000 car, and you really can't get loans on those. Mm-hmm. Like, those cars are so old and so busted up that nobody really wants to give a loan for those types of cars which makes the car buying process cheap, you know, more affordable for a lot of people because saving up a bulk amount of money. So they end up having to pay, you know, out of pocket, which takes a lot of time to build up the savings for. And even then you're buying something that is not as reliable as, you know, the car that I would be able to buy. So it just ends up being the and then and then you have to pay for the maintenance of it, which you don't ever know how much it's going to be and whenever. Like, you know, you can do regular maintenance on a vehicle, but even when you do regular maintenance, other things come up. Mm -hmm. So but if we had cheap, reliable, effective public transportation, you would not have to worry about that. Like if you could 
reliably do everything you needed with the, you know, like a city transportation pass that maybe costs 90 bucks a month. Like that would be so much easier for people instead of having to park. And especially, you know, like in cities paying for parking, you know, and, and vandalism. And I mean, not to say that cities are rife with crime. I mean, I I've had my car vandalized in the most rural of areas, but (laughs) like, you know, it just ends up being a big cost that you have to do on other things. And the additional cost means that there's less money to be, you know, put away for wealth reasons. Yeah. So here's an anecdote about parking. Um, I don't go downtown much. I would like to, but, you know, it's been COVID most of the time that I've lived in Indianapolis. But right before COVID, my wife's school got free tickets to see the Pacers play. And so we, you know, they were just like nosebleed seats or whatever, but it was the fine. The Pacers. Yeah, the play. I don't know. Yeah, playing the Pacers. I get it's, it. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. feeling you, Joe. Um, but anyway, even if we would have had to pay for the tickets, they would have been seven bucks a piece, so we could go see the game for fourteen dollars. The cheapest parking garage by the stadium downtown, twenty dollars. Yeah, <laughs> so, more than the damn tickets cost. Yeah. Yeah. Parking. I mean, it's a scarce resource. Um, I definitely, um, you know, the the urbanist neoliberal mind is like parking should cost more, disincentivize cars more. But but then again, you run into this situation where, um, you know, we are such a car reliant. You know, we built our society to be reliant on cars. Yeah. And even if we would like more cars or fewer cars to exist or, you know, the, you know, less reliance on it, it still ends up being that we are reliant on it and that poor people are still reliant on cars, even if they shouldn't be, you know, if, even if it's not really a true cost effective uh, mode of transportation for them, but they still need it and they still have to go park their car somewhere. So to kind of loop back to the, initial premise of this episode do you believe that an increasing lack of willingness to fund public transportation is related to this drained pools school of thought well it's weird it it, it's like with all of these things now is that there there is a time where the people who really pushed for those types of policies were people who were doing it with a racial motive like i you know uh, uh gary or barry goldwater like he's the biggest example of uh conservative politics with the express purpose for uh racial differences like that was his shtick his what his shtick was trying to rebrand segregation or rebrand segregation and, you know, uh, racist policies in a way that could be done without ever mentioning race. So there are definitely people where that is the case, but then there is, I'm there are a whole host of people out there who will buy into those ideas who are not racist or not doing it for the project of creating a, more racially unequal society yeah at this point privatizing public goods has kind of taken on a life of its own right like um it it 
it's its own separate thing and those those two groups of people cohabitate together <laughs> um you know and it's hard it's hard to describe initiatives that are happening now of whether they are being done through the lens of racism or not and you know i'm going to guess people at the time thought it was but you know through the historical context we can see oh i mean this this totally feels like you know an innovation of racism but now it's like well do you really think that you know uh it should be more difficult for uh black people to you know get to work timely or do you just have a philosophical belief that uh subways are not a useful use of taxpayer dollars yeah so it's almost you know it's impossible to kind of decouple those unless you have someone who really fucks up in a hot mic moment but um you know beyond that it's almost beneficial to just kind of ignore the stated rationale and, and look at the consequences the impacts of the policy that's kind of the way that i try to think about it yeah you know that i mean it's just uh i mean you get into a weird space where you could call like if a policy has racial implications you you call the policy racist but then you run into the scenario where you know by you know the transitive property you would you would also you know logically think that the people who you know want the policy are racist where that's not you know and then we're using the the prejudice version of the word racist instead of the systemic version of the word racist and you know and then you get caught calling people you know prejudice against black people where they don't believe they are they just believe that they i don't know they don't believe that you know a subway is an adequate use of public dollars yeah Um, and i think that the definition gets all tangled up together Yeah, the definitional concern is interesting it's something that ibram x kendi talks about in how to be an anti-racist which for full disclosure i think there's some good stuff in it there's some kookier stuff in it so um i think people should read it but you know, it's not like a fully warm endorsement of the book. It's, it's pretty good. Um, he talks about trying to simplify definitions. So if something is racist, that means that it creates differential outcomes for black and white people. So if you support a policy that creates differential outcomes, you are in that instance a racist. And I think that's something that he tries to situate is the uh, contextual nature of racism. You know, people don't have to be wearing a robe and a hood to support abolishing a development in Fishers, which is really happening right now, um, uh-huh. that will end up, you know, basically locking uh, black and low income people out of affordable housing. But in that situation, you are still behaving as a racist. And then that's the kind of the title of his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is when you find all of these instances of racism, you you either are a racist or an anti-racist. And being an anti-racist is within that context, within that situation, supporting the choice that will eliminate the differential outcomes for black and white people. 
But I think that's the bigger point here that I want to make is that we talk about racism so much, but even within the academic community, even when the, within the anti-racist movement, there is not a universal definition and bright line for what people consider racist. And so then it gets tripped up, especially with people who are on the outside of the movement and just say, well, racism is being a bad person. I'm not a bad person. So nothing I can do is racist. Right. Well, yeah, that's, um, uh, I am, I, uh, I am a somewhat subscriber or reader of, uh, John McWater, who is a race commentator and he, you know, he's in the black community, but he's someone who is more likely to criticize, uh, Ibram X Kendi, um, even getting into some feuds <laughs> sometimes. And, and it's kind of along those lines. It's like, um, John McWhorter, he is a linguist by training, um, but then also, you know, does this thing where he does race commentary and, um, you know, it's like, you know, words, words have meanings to people. <laughs> and for most people hearing the word racism means, you know, wearing the hood or, you know, saying those N words or, you know, this or that. And it isn't, uh, I mean, uh, the definition of that. Um, you know, the, you know, we have property taxes fund our public schools and, you know, uh, because of, you know, the color of law, um, the black areas have, you know, fewer resources to put towards their, you know, and so then, uh, the pu you know, funding of public schools through property taxes is racist. Like those aren't ideas that are congruent in people's minds, um, and, you know, and you and I and other people can argue about that. Mm -hmm. um, so it, 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 it is something, but it also comes up, you know, we just talked about all this and basically, you know, to sum up the summate to, uh, in summation of the summation of the, <laughs> the book is that we did all these Paul, we did all these things that basically burn, you know, the retreating army basically burned all the countryside as it went along, you know, the whites being the retreating army, you know, burned all the things that were good along the way, public pools, public education and all this stuff. And it's just historically, historically, we have not sought to have great public provisions for a lot of things that would be racially good, you know, like, um, you know, there had basically this country, it seems to be that the reason why we don't have a national healthcare system for everybody, a universal healthcare system is because of the fear that black people would have insurance or healthcare under the same guise as everybody else. You know, when Obamacare came through, um, you know, there was this expansion of Medicaid that would expand health care coverage for people who traditionally didn't uh, get health care coverage from Medicaid, but also were too poor to get money for Obamacare or really afford their own insurance. So there was this Medicaid expansion to make it so that those people would qualify for Medicaid and be able to get health coverage. 
well, there, you know, through some Supreme Court trickery, it basically became came down that it was up to the individual states of whether they were going to expand Medicare or not. And it was like a sweetheart deal, like for the first three years, the federal government paid all of it. And after that, the gov- federal government paid 90% of that expansion and the states paid 10%, which, you know, Medicaid funding or, you know, traditionally is much closer to a one-to-one payment. Um, but, you know, and who, who are the states that resisted the uh, expansion of Medicaid? Uh, the states that have a greater history of public policy and institutions that were more exclusionary of black people Mm -hmm. mainly a lot of southern states um you know you know there is a conservative bias to it but like a state uh like utah expanded medicaid eventually before a lot of other states have and why is that because well i i'm gonna say here i'm pretty sure utah expanded medicaid but you know, and they're a very conservative state, but you know, notably, they don't have a history. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of black people out in Utah, and they don't have a history of creating public policy to exclude black people from public provisions. So they were more willing to go along with the expansion of Medicaid because they don't have that historic bias. Yeah, Utah is always a fascinating case study because they are more racially and ethnically homogenous than most conservative states so utah is the one with the statewide housing first policy utah has the most progressive housing policy in the nation um yeah and i'm sure it has something to do with the concept that you know there's less fear there because of their homogeneity there's less of a fear that someone who doesn't look like me is going to use this public benefit yeah so, 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 this, this goes to a next portion of the conversation that I wanted to have, and I may be springing this a bit on Evan as well. That's okay. I can roll um, with it. Let's roll with it. So, so what happens is that we have, you know, in the progressive world, we have all of these programs that we want to enact, whether it be a child allowance, whether it be universal health care whether it be a more affordable housing and what we'll do in this modern era, what we'll do is we'll, we'll look at what we want to do and we'll see that it has a lot of benefits for the poorest people. And it happens to be that in American society, uh, you know, a, a higher proportion of the poorest people are, uh, you know, black and African-American people. I mean, that's the same thing. I always, <laughs> I flip flop between which term I use, but, and so what we end up coming out and saying is that we believe in this policy that would be great for everybody. And we see that it was, would especially help, uh, you know, the, the minorities, you know, uh, African-Americans, Mexican people, you know, what have you. I did see this come and, up on slow boring today. So I kind of know where you're yes, going. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And I, I read most of that article. Um, so it, it's weird that we just came out, you know, we basically robbed all of these public provisions in the name of racial resentment for the most part. And, we want to bring about these 
policies and in part to do it because it's hip right now to say that we want to do it as part of to fix these wrongs. But then you also run into the scenario that has been pretty well documented is that white support for these public provisions go down the more they are made aware (laughs) that it is more likely to help people of color, which is kind of a spooky thing. Like, you know, there is a good long while where, um, you know, uh, people would be upset at Democrats for not talking about race as much. And part of it, you know, very well could be that, you know, if you talk about these policies that we want to do, these progressive policies that, you know, we believe that would make society better. If you talk about it mostly through the lens of making the other more well off instead of everybody, then, you know, there is a contingency of white people who will not want to support it because it makes, you know, it makes black people more better off than white people. And I don't know, it's just it's just kind of a tough thing to grapple with. I mean, I mean, people like Evan and I, we we want to see a more equitable world for these people. We want to see ends to racist policies under the Ibrahim definition. Um, But but then again, it could also possibly hinder the political prospects of that coming about by talking about the express, you know, some of the express goals of diminishing the racial uh, effects of the old policy in the world. Yeah. And where I want to kind of maybe pull this apart a little bit is that I think it's just conflicting concerns because, and this is really just a manifestation of a broader problem, is that there's one way that you kind of have to speak to your base when you're hoping to get elected and then there's another way that you have to speak once you're in power and you're trying to actually govern and it's kind of one of those things where you know sometimes never the twain shall meet because there is a real concern among progressive activists and anti-racist activists that democratic politicians are not invested in those causes. And so they want to hear strong commitments to explicitly anti-racist policies and policies that will alleviate racial disparities. And they want to put it in those terms because within sort of a democratic primary, there's no downside to that, right? But then once you're in power, you run up against this other force, which is what you've already uh enumerated joe that public support for these programs drops when you talk about it in explicitly racist terms so it really puts i think progressive politicians in a unique bind of having to simultaneously sell one side of the aisle that this will help explicitly minorities and people who are worse off and then turning around and saying to the other side of the aisle, it's just for everyone, it's fine. And (laughs) there's really not a good balancing act that anyone has discovered yet. Right. I mean, this is like the, uh, 
you know, we've talked about this before, like the differences between Republicans and Democrats, like the Democrats, the the kind of unpopular thing is that, ooh, maybe our stuff will help minorities more than other people um, will. I mean, it's still a good for everybody. I mean, fuck. I mean, it would be great to have universal health care. I mean, I even have private insurance and I'm like, Ugh, this is I don't know. Oh weird. boy, I could, I could, I could give a four-hour podcast on what my yeah. family's going through. With anyway, anyway, right anyway, now, anyway, yeah, anyway, anyway, we don't need to go on that. Yeah, um, but it's uh, it, it's just that you know that's kind of the unpopular thing. Whereas you know Republicans, you know they don't need to go out there and publicly affirm I want to cut taxes for the wealthiest people, like. That is not something that they go out, have to go out there and affirmatively say all the time um, in, in order to get the support of wealthy people who are seeking those tax cuts. Mm-hmm. Like, like, it's just assumed. Like, this is what they do. Um, so it ends up being that, you know, the culture war is, it, you know, the culture wars are tough. And they, and they oftentimes end up being tough for Democrats because, because they're asymmetrical. Well, well, yeah, a lot of the you know a lot of the project there is trying to make a more equitable society, and people are like, mm, I don't know about that, uh, or or are more hesitant, you know, it, you know, to be the good faith version of this is that people will be more hesitant of policies if they think they go to people who don't deserve them. And there is a real racial implication oftentimes in this country of who is the deserving party. Yeah. Um, and that that's just how it ends up coming. So, it, you know, we're, we're just, you know, it, it's the duality of, you know, seeing how our society has been gutted through... I mean, at the time it was pretty explicitly racist, but now even, you know, uh, you know, tangentially racist. But then also, if you talk about it in that lens, you make it often harder to win that argument with the electorate. And I mean, and part of the argument is also that, like, you know, in this last election, Democrats did worse with a lot of minorities than they historically have. Um, even in light of all that happened in the last four years, um, there's something in the messaging that's just, I, you know, I mean, there were, you know, Trump had more black support than Republicans have had in a long time. Trump had more Hispanic support than uh, uh, Republicans have had in a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not to diminish the work that certain activists like Stacey Abrams have done to really mobilize minority votes. I mean, you know, the Democrats wouldn't have won Georgia without the the work of minority voters and minority organizers. But Joe's right that when you look at the national aggregates, the shift from the 2016 results and the breakdown between Clinton and Trump and then the breakdown between Biden and Trump is mostly attributable to a shift in white white support away from Trump. Right. Um, so it's just kind of, you know, it's one of those things where you're just kind of scratching your head a little bit. Like, you know, what do we do about this? Like, 
the democratic message was more explicitly than it almost ever has been of being, you know, trying to provide racial equality and, you know, uh, try and create a better world for, you know, African-Americans and the other minorities in this country. But then also through at a time when we were more explicit about that than ever, there was a proportional loss in support that was somewhat more and maybe it was just a blip. Yeah, we're always we're we're not uh, we don't have the full context yet unless we understand because also remember this was an election during a fucking pandemic and there were differential ways that states responded to that that pissed everybody off on both sides of the aisle. Um, Right. So, yeah, it's but no, it's an interesting suggestion. And like you said, once we have more data points, we'll understand, you know, is there something to this? Is there not? But for right now, all we can do is speculate and we fucking love to speculate. Yeah, maybe it was all just a blip on a line graph, you know, you know, it where in the in the future it will be, you know, indistinguishable noise that, you know, nobody would ever understand why you would devote time and energy to talking about it. But, you know, from this one election cycle, it was stark enough where, you know, it's kind of like, huh, you know, we were we were trying to talk to those people more so than ever. And you know, the numbers changed in the opposite direction of what you would think mm-hmm. or what you would understand. So it's it's just a curiosity. You know, we're trying to create a more equitable society. But if you talk about making a more equitable society, then people are like, huh, I don't want equality for those people. And and so hence, I don't really know how I feel about this. Yeah. Um, at some point, does messaging about an unequal society undermine support for building a more equal society? It's like, you know, are we going to have to come up with the, the paradox of social inclusion? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, I also feel like this society, you know, part of the privatization that happened over, you know, the last part of the century of the 20th century and into this, you know, century is that like American society is tough. Like, you know, there isn't a whole lot of security. Like even if you make it out, well, the, the level of security that you feel here versus you would in like a Nordic country or something is way different. Oh yeah. And actually I, I want to let you continue cause I'm, I'm sure that you've got a lot to say, but I just want to interject and say, this is something that I think about all the time is that we've sort of traded this massive growth and you know wildly unequal economic distribution and for that we've traded security and so i wonder if that feeling of being economically secure is more important than the actual dollars in your bank account and that could have a lot of social implications but but please continue well yeah but yeah that is i i feel that as well but it's also like I wonder if that since our society is so much uh, like getting success is so precarious or just having a base level security is so precarious that since it's hard to get and if you are able to get it, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, it could go away at any moment that people are in a way less likely to uh or or less open to these solutions than 
uh, you know, equitable solutions than they otherwise would be because it's like, well, I got mine right now. I don't know if I'm going to be able to hold on to it, but I know the system well enough right now to keep on to it. And I don't want to blow up the situation in a way that, you know, we wouldn't have it. Like, you know, a lot of places where they developed their universal healthcare systems, it came from a position where not everybody had access to healthcare um, a lot of times. Or there was a, a great rebuilding of society like, you know, World War II. Like, that's when a lot of the uh, national healthcare systems came about in Europe was after World War II. And we were like, hey, we went through this big struggle together. Um, and it looks like we all need health care. Let's all have health care. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in American society, we were able to kind of plot along and like, you know, we have this weird system. But if you're able to get it now, you're kind of wary of a big change up because you were able to get yeah. it. <laughs> and and you having it is precarious enough. So you don't want like a big shakeup you know, it's kind of scary. You know, I got mine and I know how to keep mine. I don't know if I want to go into a system that, you know, changes that up and maybe I won't have mine, you know, be on the same level as, you know, one of the pores. Yeah. And that's absolutely valid. And some people even take it a step further and sort of resent people who are lower than them being made equal or better off in some way this came up on the pod with uh heather mcgee where she would interview people in some of the states that hadn't done medicaid expansion and about why they didn't support the medicaid expansion even people who were you know poor whites and basically if you were if you had enough money that you could buy into the marketplace through obamacare those people didn't want people who had less money than them getting that health care that they struggled to pay for for free. So it's just crazy right. that they they directed that towards, uh, you know, the people who were even lower on the rung than them instead of asking for more inclusivity on the national health care policy. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's I mean, it's just kind of a dog eat dog world, you know like over here (laughs) that's kind of the the central theme right of heather mcgee's thinking is that we have bought into this zero thought zero sum mythology and that colors so much of how we interact with each other right i mean let's i mean you know I'll, i'll use the dog analogy i mean fuck it i mean we were in a society where you know we all got fed regularly every day so we never had to really worry about it, but there were, you know, I don't know, uh, the the other dogs, you know, that are, you know, stand in for African-Americans, you know, they didn't get fed regularly and they were scrawny and all that, you know, we thought, oh, they, you know, they, do they really deserve to get fed? So what we did was instead of having us, you know, bringing them into, you know, everybody getting fed regularly, we, you know, took their system and brought it to everybody. <laughs> And, you know, and it's like some people get fed, some people don't. But, you know, the food is insecure enough that everyone, you know, once they're able to get a little bit, you know, they just mow it all down. You know, you ever see one of those videos of a dog who um, doesn't know how to properly eat, probably <laughs> brought through scarcity, and they just wolf it all down in like two seconds. Like, 
it, it almost feels like that's what people in American society are like. It's like, we got something we're going to, we're going to fucking have it all right now. And I don't care if I'm stealing out of somebody else's bowl or, you know, we could have a better system, you know, of feeding, you know, like that, you know, there are so few opportunities. I'm just going to take it all while I can get yeah, it. The food is in front of me now, so I cannot think any longer term than that. I mean, you know, I feel like, you know, there are in some ways, you know, progressives, we are oftentimes less concerned about fraud in public provisions and or, you know, like, you know, just anything like, you know, if there was a a paid sick leave thing, you know, that was like of the German model where the German model, it's like, you know, you can take off any day because you're sick, like basically no questions asked. And if it gets to the third day, you have to go and get a doctor's note. And I feel like, you know, that's a great system. And I and I like that. But you're only really able to have a system like that in a culture of innate cultural trust mm -hmm. that you're not going to abuse that. And I feel like if we were like if we were to take that system and just plop it down in America, it would get abused heavily. Why? Not because we're shitty people. But because we have like there are so few provisions that, you know, extend some sort of kindness to society that people would use that as a lever to, you know, as like a release valve for other provisions that they're not getting in society. Yeah, no, that's a really good way to think about it, um, that, you know people there's a lot of reasons that they could need to take off work be it physical health mental health schedule rearrangement or even just wanting a break but you know because our paid sick leave and vacation time and mental health infrastructure have also and eroded just rules about scheduling ahead of time yeah oh shit yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah, so then that one thing that has a very specific intent within German culture would become a bloated catch-all if directly transported here. Yeah, and yeah, people, and you know, there's a lot of abuse of public assistant programs because there aren't a whole lot of catch-alls. Like, you know, one of the big findings from the Great Recession years is that you know, there were a whole lot of prime wor age working men who lost their jobs and they went on social and, you know, social security disability insurance. And in some ways, some of it was fraud. I mean, and because there weren't a whole lot of public assistance programs eligible for those people long term, but as the economy got better there were fewer people on it because they were bait you know they had a better ep economic opportunity than you know being on social disability mm -hmm. <laughs> um so people will abuse social programs when they're not able to make things work yeah and it, it is based on need you know fewer people would have like like Joe said as soon as the economic conditions got better the fraud declined but when there weren't those economic opportunities people still needed to pay bills they still needed to support themselves and so if you can find that one crack in the disability system and you know you're not technically disabled but you can get a doctor's note yada yada and, and it's not to discuss 
count people who really did have to go on disability. Obviously, I think we've made that clear. But I mean, hell, I, I don't even really want to discount the people who did the fraud. No, exactly. That's, that's like, what I think we're building to yeah, is that yeah, yeah. They, they did it because there was no other way for them to have their needs met in our current social safety net. Yeah, I mean, the... I mean, there was big talk of, you know, during the peak years of use, it was like, it's too hard to get uh, disability insurance. Too many people are mooching off of this. Um, You know, this is a problem that's going to be a problem for forever if we don't do something about it. And lo and behold, like people came off of it once there were more jobs readily available. Mm -hmm. Like, like people were using that inappropriately but there was you know they they their plan wasn't to just mooch off of it for the rest of their lives they it was a crutch that they were able to use through the narrow you know whatever definitions of it and um you know because there wasn't you know extended unemployment um you know and all that kind of stuff then they were pushed to it Mm -hmm. Um, you know, to try and find whatever thing to help provide for their family as they can. And since, you know, we make it hard in this society, then we made it, you know, you push people to do a little fraud in the social programs. And I mean, hell, sometimes I even wonder if that's still part of the case of, you know, uh, you know, elite uh, you know, wealthy people shrugging on their taxes and, you know, all that stuff. I am not sympathetic to that, but I wonder if it's still, you know, a similar mechanism or just or just straight greed. I mean, that's also that's also on the table. Yeah, I mean, but, with all of these things, there's the element of rationality to it, where if you can do something to improve your situation, you might as well. And that's why, you know, public policy and how it's constructed matters. You know, we can do things that incentivize certain behaviors and disincentivize others for rich people cheating on their taxes hell i let's just fund the irs better but that's really unpopular so yeah well i mean hell i mean it was like uh remember that scandal that came about when uh it turns out that wealthy parents were sending their kids to the university of illinois i mean this was like the big case wealthy kids were sending their parent kids to the university of illinois but these kids were getting um, basically their entire education paid for because they oh, did a lo- yeah. legal loophole. Yeah. So the the legal loophole was basically they would declare that their kid was no longer their kid. Yeah, they would get legally um, emancipated so that their family wealth wouldn't affect their financial aid package. <laughs> yeah. So that they would basically be able to go to school for free. And like... And they talked with some of the parents like that and they were like, well, it was, you know, somebody told me I was able to do it. I worked the rules. I mean, those were the rules as they were laid out. We were able to do it. So we were able to save a whole bunch of money. Yeah. Now, that type of fraud wouldn't happen if we just had publicly funded institutions that were cheap straight up. Mm hmm. Like, you know, sometimes I hear the argument that, like, you know, why should the rich people have to pay for this, all this education when the poor people don't? And, you know, I, you know, I can do the song of dance of, you know, you know, they have the money and, you know, it, you know, you need people who have the money to pay for it in order 
you know, it's for it to happen because, you know, it's a, it's, you know, this is for them almost a luxury product and, you know, it, it, you know, their wealth won't be as affected by it. So they need to pay full price, but, but, you know, on a grander scale, it's like, well, I don't know if it should really be that for anybody because it just incentivizes fraud Yeah, in some ways. And it incentivizes fraud and it incentivizes resentment. Yeah. Um, I wonder how much of what we do inefficiently, really the biggest negative externality is that it incentivizes resentment. I feel like <laughs> I, I, this is like one of my deeply held beliefs is that I feel like we just made American society one that just one costs the most and two just makes everybody the most mad at each other. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that. I'm I'm hearing you, man. Like, like not only is college like expensive, but like the poor people are resentful at the rich people for being able to afford it, and the rich people are resentful at the poor people for getting more assistance than they do. Yeah. Like it's just circular resentment. Yeah, we we built a system that guarantees that everyone is mad at each other, no matter where you come yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, people. I mean, is this why we have all this grievance politics? Is because there is just so much grievance out there <laughs> that we built like, ourselves. Yeah, we built a society that has grievance built into it. Like, and, and I, and I feel like both sides have, I mean, the stuff that we end up doing grievance politics is just, you know, I feel like a lot of times it's kind of stupid, but somebody's aggrieved because it, because <laughs> it's working. Like, I don't know, like people talk about how, you know, I mean, this ill, this is a tangent, but I mean, like Rush Limbaugh died this last week and a lot of people really liked Rush and, you know, what he said and you know, people like Evan and I will like look and it's like, you know, you say Rush spoke for you, but like it feels like Rush said a whole lot of fucked up shit yeah. in our in our eyes, like to us. And, you know, it just sounds like bad stuff. And, you know, it, if if anything, it's just like it, it is the way Rush, you know, spoke to you is that like. Hey, maybe I do have some things that maybe aren't always the most correct things, but like maybe I still have an, a, a right to have an opinion to them and not be seen as an asshole. <laughs> like, if anything, that seems like the way, pe you know, the way he spoke to people like, uh, you know, he was the champion for having ideas on things and not wanting to be like the, you know, just as, you know, just be seen as an asshole for having those opinions. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's the real thing he spoke for. Um, you know, not being politically correct or having room to not be political. Yeah. Trying to shield yourself, yeah, shield yourself from the social consequences of unpopular opinions. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, <laughs> I mean, if anything, I feel like that's the whole, the whole right wing discourse. I, I mean, the grievance politics, it's not even like, I don't know, giving stuff to black people. It's just like, I, I'm upset that you don't take me in the most good faith. And it's like, but then you weren't in good faith. <laughs> yeah, it's 
it seems like increasingly a lot of political discourse, I don't know about increasingly, but uh, it seems like there's a good chunk of discourse that isn't about the thing, it's about the ability to say the thing without having people yell at you. <laughs> well, it's the useful concept Jane Coaston brought. It's not thing, it's thing adjacent. Yeah, there you go. I, I guess I have heard that before. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's not that... Our, our, our conversation is not about whether Jordan Peterson is able to go and say that he doesn't really um, understand the whole trans thing. It's that the thing adjacent is that, you know, like whether a university is going to allow him to go and give a talk about it. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> we're not discussing thing. We're, we're discussing, like, the consequences of things. You know, or thing adjacent. Yeah. So, you know, it's not the 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 trial wasn't whether Donald Trump incited uh, a mob to go and try and insurrect the government. It's about it ended up being about, you know, the defense was whether, uh, you know, he has free speech and was able to use like words that Democrats have used before in other contexts. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, has anyone ever used the language of fighting before? <laughs> um, which I think was absolutely crazy. I mean, if you're just out on a campaign and saying we need to fight for health care, that is a whole lot different than standing on the lawn of the Capitol or outside, you know, nearby and saying, we need to fight to stop the fraud of this election that is certified down the street where Mike Pence has the power to, under my belief, to not certify the election. Yeah, yeah. The uh, direct. There's an action there. there. Yeah, Yeah, there's a direct action that can be taken. That is directly fight. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, thing adjacent. Great concept. Um, so, in some, in summation, um, <laughs> we, we kind of burned everything down. <laughs> and uh, building it back up is tough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we've teased. You start it. Yeah, we, we've teased this viewer mail for a long time, so we're finally going to go ahead and do it. Just respond to a couple. One is going to be from our loyal listener, Michael M. And Michael is asking about the future of student loans with the Biden administration. For context, Joe Biden has frozen student loan interest and student loan payments through at least September, and. There is a strong push within the Democratic Party to alleviate some amount of student loan debt. Some are saying $10,000 per borrower. Some are saying $50,000 per borrower. So Michael is asking, what what is likely to happen? And I think for now, about the cap that we could get would be $10,000 per student reduction. I don't see a widespread political will for more, despite my personal desire for more and a lot of lofty campaign promises. Um, I think 10K is about the best that we can do. However, what I'm trying to 
steer people towards more and more is that the answer, what will happen in X political battle is more up to us than we realize. You know, if student loan relief is important to you, um, find organizations out there that lobby for that. Find ways to connect with people who share that vision and amplify your voice. And maybe the answer will be more generous or more in line with what you're hoping for. I mean, that's something that I think is really hard for me personally, but I'm, I'm trying more and more to take direct action as opposed to just simply reading and talking about things. Joe, what do you think I mean, about the future of student debt relief? Well, if you want to do something, the the Biden economics teams are the some of the most online uh, administration officials ever. Um, so find them and tweet at them, I guess. Um, you know, it, it looks like economics Twitter is playing a whole lot more role in uh, in uh, government than it has in the past. Um, but really, so what I'm looking at at this is, I mean, we don't have some sort of magic insight onto, you know, what the clear policy is going to be. But so, I mean, recently, uh, Joe Biden basically came out and says he doesn't think he has the authority to forgive a full $50,000. And why this is a discussion, why why we're talking about student loans versus any other type of loans versus you know any other types of debt is because that there is a believed uh, power within for uh, the president to unilaterally um, somewhat forgive debt. I don't know if it's I don't know the exact mechanism, but that's what it's believed. So. That's why we're talking about student debt. That's why we're talking about student debt relief is because while it may not be the most effective or progressive policy position that we could do at this moment, it's something that could possibly be done. Yeah. Um, now, Biden, I basically, if this were to happen, I'm pretty sure it'd be challenged in courts um, because it is something that is a little bit more controversial um, just this full scale debt relief. So I'm I'm going to guess is that the reason why Biden says that he doesn't believe he can believe fifty thousand dollars is because I feel like the challenges that would come to a fifty thousand dollars of relief per borrower through the unilateral decision, the cases that would come would be a whole lot stronger or come a lot more forcibly than if he forgave like ten thousand dollars. And $10,000 of debt forgiveness would also um, would be like the lowest cost, most benefit amount, because most uh, borrowers out there where the student loans are the biggest burden on them are people who didn't finish college and have some debt. Um, so this would have disproportionate like, you know the conversation before this would disproportionately help um, a lot of uh, black people and minorities and people who are poor, who were able to attempt to do some college, but weren't able to get the real benefits of it. Um, so that's, that's where the 10,000, I mean, that's the a rough approximation. Nobody did the numbers, but everyone's kind of like, eh, I know some people are upset that that is now the goalpost, but you know, it, it is, we're at but where we go from here i actually just kind of wonder like 
So Trump was the one who started the student loan debt freeze where um, no payments were owed and the loans were kept at 0%. And that was extended to basically right when the Biden administration took over. And then the Biden administration has kept that going until September. But, you know, outside of like the debt forgiveness debate, I I feel like the lifting of that will just be a very weird political project. Like it could be something that like people very lobby very hard, like that, oh, we have not seen the end of this. We still need, you know, this zero dollar, zero interest, oh, you know, extension. So I just wonder, me personally, I wonder if this is one of those things that just kind of goes on indefinitely. Like Brexit. Where, yeah, kind <laughs> of like that, where where the political uh, conditions were such that an action was taken, but nobody really knows how a good way to resolve it. So it just kind of goes on indefinitely. Like, is that just one of those things where like the first day the administration comes in and was like, and we once again uh, observe the zero dollar, zero owed, zero percent interest student loans. We once Again. again, renew it as we do every year. We don't know why we do this, but <laughs> you know, that's that's my favorite joke about Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> to those who don't know, I've probably already said it, but the joke is is like the British Prime Minister the year is twenty fifty four, the British Prime Minister once again goes to Brussels. It's a great ceremony, everyone's there, and the <laughs> the British Prime Minister goes up and speaks at the podium and is like I declare that this nation of the United Kingdom asks for another extension of the Brexit deadline. And everyone cheers and nobody knows why they do it. (laughs) Um, But they do it every year and it's a grand celebration. Um, I wonder, I don't know. Like, I feel like it would be something that would be politically untenable, like unless things like were really good economically to like reinstate student loan payments because you know i have quite benefited from not having to make student loan payments same here man Um, same here and and a lot of people have and since it's just kind of in this stasis i mean it'll be really jarring once it's like forced to come back and um so i think this is one of those things where we'll just kind of have to wait and see because like I said, it'll, it'll be kind of politically untenable to like force all these people to make their payments again. Like I, you know, I, I fully accept at this point, like while I want student loan debt forgiveness, I don't expect anything. I expect to make all my payments and I, you know, it won't be too bad, you know, burdensome on me to do so. So I'm, I don't have a real skin in this debate and I can go either way as you know just as personal interest and you know as i don't know as a citizen i don't really know either um so i mean i i know i believe in the project of uh you know trying to get better you know more affordable college but i you know i 
again, I don't know, is just full scale debt forgiveness the way to go? And, you know, do we really want to, you know, uh, you know, uh, full scale relieve debt for people who go to these professional schools who are like really going to like, you know, do we want to, you know, some of the top borrowers are people who have hundreds of thousands of debt from like going to Harvard law school. I mean, I think they're going to be able to pay their stuff back. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just a weird question. It, weird implications. And we're, and of course, like you and I, and most of our audience of the age where it's a pretty pertinent question. Yeah, absolutely. So Michael, I hope we answered your question. If we didn't let us know podcast at adequately informed.com <laughs> <laughs> that yeah uh, Mike, michael knows the the address um but for those of I you mean, who don't yeah. that it, that's what it is yeah yeah so we do want to hit right, on one one final question for today just for today we gotta we gotta meter it out and this is from listener alex a and it's sort of within the context of the minimum wage debate and, you know, what kind of standards of living do people expect. So Alex asks, in our opinion, how much happiness slash ease of living slash luxury do people deserve for working 40 hours per week? And Joe, I'm going to flip that over to you first. Yeah, so I feel like as a society... You know, the talks of wealth that we had before, like, I feel like society would just run a whole lot easier if it just came to be that if somebody worked a full time job that, you know, that they would be able to take care of themselves now themselves, like just themselves. I don't mean support a family. I don't mean like, you know, all this other stuff. I mean, that would also be beneficial, but like at the very minimum, I believe that someone making a minimum wage job should be able to make enough money to provide them with food, shelter, transportation, water, heat, and, you know, just the bare necessities. That's, that's about what I think a you know, at the very least, that's what should be afforded with a minimum wage job. So I'm going to take the lefty position and I'm going to say that in Evan's utopia, again, not worrying about the political realities to get us there, but I believe that all those things should be birthrights, essentially. And once you get to waged employment, that should be working for higher order things like vacations luxury fun having interesting hobbies and work should be more about fulfillment than about basic sustenance and i know that's controversial uh oren cass would absolutely try to skin me alive for that position and you know uh he can go fuck himself I did also recently read the book, uh, The Once and Future Worker by Oren Cass. I do not recommend this book. As I said to Joe in the pre-show, and as I said to my wife immediately after finishing it, it is the single most misguided public policy book that I have ever read. But that's not to say that there's not interesting uh, discourse to be had on this topic, just that Oren Cass does not engage in it. Anyway, yeah. now that that personal vendetta has been aired... Um, I can say that, yeah, I think that there's a certain level of 
being able to live that should not be conditional upon employment. And then employment should be something that people engage in to to make their lives better, you know? I don't think that fear of starving to death is what should motivate employment. It should be some other thing. Yeah. So here, here we are at one of our scenarios of differences of how we want to think about this. And it, and it's like, I don't disagree with anything that you said. I don't really disagree with it. The only thing is like, I, I, I don't know, is that conversation helpful in the current like minimum wage debate? I, I'm like trying to frame something, you know, that like in concrete help right now. But I also understand the utopian vision of that and I totally support it. It's just like right now talking about the minimum wage, I think just like at a minimum, it should you know, be able, you know, you should be able to take care of yourself with it. Not your family, which though. Which isn't always the case now. Because that's usually something that comes up. I guess if we want to have this, you know, this discussion in a more policy realist realm, I think it's interesting that you, your vision says you, you take care of yourself and then that's it. Because most people say, you know, you should be able to support a family with a minimum wage job. So, so why is that distinction present for you? Well, I'm saying at a minimum. I would hope you would be able to support, but like, I'm just trying to get up one more level now than what we have where people can't even take care of themselves at a basic level on minimum wage in a lot of locales. Okay. So it's so, just, yeah, you know, it's, I guess I am, here's, here's how I'll phrase our uh, lack of seeing eye to eye here is that. I'm looking at the top of the ladder and you're looking at the very next rung from the status quo. Essentially, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there you go, Alex. Um, that is our brief take on your question. Hopefully it was informative to you. If not... And you can maybe see why the discussions of the minimum wage get heated because even Evan and I are two people who support the increase of minimum wage and increase of living standards. And we both have differences of opinions of what it should be capped at and what the goals of it should be. Well, again, though, I only support a, an increase in the minimum wage sort of in relation to the status quo in Evan utopia, Evtopia, if you will, um, there's no minimum wage because everyone is provided a universal basic income to take care of their basic needs. And then if they want to work as a Walmart greeter for 50 cents an hour, then cool. Yeah. But <laughs> yes. nobody should have. I mean, it's like, I don't know. I mean, sometimes, you know, in progressive spaces, we get into stuff like this where it's like, Somebody will say nobody who works 40 hours a week should live in poverty. And then like, you know, that's trying to help move the minimum wage debate along. And then somebody will be like, well, nobody should live in poverty. And it's like it's not so much that, you know, the person saying that, you know, doesn't, you know, 
I I definitely believe that nobody should live in poverty. But, you know, within this specific context of the specific policy provision, within the specific, you know, politics that we have today, this is why I'm saying that. Yeah, I guess you know. the context for me matters a lot, too, less in terms of what the debate is versus where the debate is being held. Like, I think if like Senator Sherrod Brown on the Senate floor said, nobody making, nobody working 40 hours a week should be living in poverty as a speech on a minimum wage hike bill. That makes sense. But just to have sort of it disconnected from the legislative process and to hear that disembodied voice on Twitter say, nobody working 40 hours a week should live in poverty, it becomes much easier than to say, well, you're not on the, the Senate floor. There's no stakes to what you're saying. Why not shoot for the moon? You know, that that's kind of how I think about it, at I least guess, in terms of framing all... the discomfort around it. Right. Well, then I, I'm also pretty sure that are, are we just having conversations about ourselves? But um, um, anyway, um, uh, yeah, fair. No, absolutely. Yeah, fair. People... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean. People respond to certain things. I don't know. I just, it, yeah. Anyway, um, I, I think if we were to summarize, I think uh, we would both say in general terms that the minimum wage should afford a better life than it gets now. There you go. Good, good work finding common ground, Joe. Y- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, th- this is sometimes I get frustrated. It's like... <laughs> just in progressive politics it's like hey we all agree that things should be better than they are now just how much better should they be is where we're falling apart but we should shoot for better (laughs) so yeah yeah so anyway i think that's it yeah this it's been a a a more wide-ranging show almost a throwback i i was digging it yeah hopefully you were digging it maybe you fucking hate me but if you hate me i guess you probably wouldn't be listening to this show I mean, people do hate listen, but I don't think we have people who would hate listen to this. Yeah, we ain't that big. We don't ruffle enough feathers. Maybe we I need should. to. I think I should start uh, tweeting at think tank, the policy analysts, and get into some beef. All we have to do to ruffle feathers, apparently, is to try to do. Uh, an advertising promotion of the show the same week we talk about George Floyd and then, you know, we'll get a lot of vitriolic stuff in the comments. Well, it was really just one guy. I feel like there was like <laughs> half a dozen people piling on. I don't know. We, we don't have to relitigate it. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, not mad anyway. at, I'm, I'm not mad at anyone in particular. Mad. I just think it's funny that like that's the one time yeah. that strangers responded to us was to say that yeah. racism isn't that bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. We hope that you enjoyed uh, the the words that we say. We're, we're, we're whatever. We try to be in good faith. We'd like to thank you for listening. We'd like to thank Anthony Hitch for the music. But anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed. <laughs>